Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. My name's Simon Cowley. And my name's Rick Boddy. And today we're going to be trying to use Rick's incredible brain and incredible experience around COVID-19 testing to help me understand the difference between all the tests, how we use them, whether they're any good, how we can use them on ourselves, how we can use them on our patients, and and perhaps what the science tells us. So Rick, you're an expert now on COVID-19 testing, which you weren't last year, but it's been an incredible journey. Yeah, well, this time last year, troponin was really my thing. And in the pandemic, I've really switched. So uh, I've I've moved towards looking at COVID testing and um, ended up leading this uh, Condor program, a national program for diagnostic research and evaluation into COVID tests. Uh, so it's been a really interesting journey. So all those things that we learn about troponin and how to use those kind of tests sensibly, uh, reliably, and with an evidence base behind them. I mean, that does translate into what we're trying to do now, isn't it? With the pandemic, we've got lots of people out there and we do have fundamental questions in our clinical practice. So does this patient in front of me have COVID-19? And now, of course, we're getting into the era of, of, of staff testing and in fact, population testing, where we want to know whether, well, actually, whether I've got it or you've got it or our colleagues have got it. And it's, it's a whole different world. Yes, absolutely. And although the tests look very different for COVID-19, the principles of diagnostics are very much the same. And we need to make sure that we apply them and that we um, keep what we do rooted in science. So going back to the beginning, when things really kicked off, I guess, at the beginning of the year, we were doing um, tests. So they were usually uh, nasal tests or um, from the back of the throat. And they were what's known, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, they were PCR tests. So just explain to everybody again what PCR test is. So a PCR is a polymerase chain reaction. Essentially, it's a molecular test. You're amplifying uh, parts of the SARS-CoV-2 virus to uh, identify it. And you can do that pretty well. I mean, within about two weeks of publishing the sequence of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus online, the first details of an RT-PCR assay were, were published online as well. And since then, of course, assays have been commercialized. You've got rapid throughput assays that can run thousands of tests a day. And we've relied on that as our reference method for diagnosing uh, COVID-19. The Problems are that, of course, uh, unfortunately, although we have got capacity to do rapid throughput of samples, there is a shortage of reagents. So RT-PCR is still rationed to some extent around the world, and there's a limit to how many tests you can do. But also it tends to be a little bit slow. So it can take some hospitals around up to 72 hours to get a result using RT-PCR. And that's not great when we're talking about looking after patients in an acute environment. It's not great for helping us get back to our daily lives and all of the other use cases that we can think for COVID-19 tests where we need rapid results. So RT-PCR is a great reference method and it's really helped us to manage patients early in the pandemic. But moving forward, we do need to look at other technologies as well. I mean, that's a great explanation. But one of the things which I think not everybody realizes, the PCR test is not a test for live virus. Well, that's right. And one of the suggestions has been that perhaps sometimes we might be detecting small amounts of dead virus in uh, the samples that we take. And actually, the patients are no longer infectious. So the method is actually now so sensitive. We measure the the, um, uh, viral load um, on RT-PCR with something called the CT value. So that's the cycle time. Uh, And that's essentially how many cycles of PCR you have to go through in order to detect the virus. And the higher the the CT value, the lower the viral load. 
So we're detecting patients with very small viral loads. We're using RT-PCR now with CT values above 35. And what we don't know is how how clinically significant are those results? Could those patients still be infectious? Or actually, would it be safe for them to mingle with others and, and not pass on the virus? And so it's entirely possible that somebody could have had a disease and then recovered from the disease, but still test positive for a PCR test. Yeah, theoretically possible. That's become a a concern recently because sometimes you get these high CT values, low viral loads. Um, you can't culture the virus uh, in the samples, and we, there's a the question about whether actually we're detecting uh, dormant or dead virus in some of those patients. So I think that's some of the reason why. And again, you're, you're taking into account what you're saying that it's not absolutely 100% certain on this, but it's one of the reasons why now when we're doing staff testing that if you have had a, a positive COVID diagnosis. Um, in the preceding um, weeks, then they advise that you don't actually take the test because you may just have a false positive. But actually, the evidence and the data, we're still not entirely certain about all of these things. It's a fascinating area. Yeah. So for staff testing, of course, the big news now is that we've got uh, lateral flow tests. Uh, So they're like simple pregnancy tests that you can do at home. So you have the testing strip, uh, you'll uh, apply a sample to a buffer, mix it into the buffer. The solution is then dropped onto the testing strip. And then after a set time, which is around 30 minutes or 20 minutes, you'll read off and see if there's a there's a control line. And then uh, another line, if you see the second line, then you've got a positive test. Uh, very, very simple method, doesn't require an analyzer. You know, does lend itself to self-testing on a, a, a you know, a large scale and in the UK, we've now got that twice a week for all of the NHS staff, which is a really interesting development, actually. And we helped to uh, evaluate the accuracy of uh, some of those assays. The results for the ANOVA assay have been published online. Um, and for that, we, we looked at the sensitivity in the Falcon study. So 14 testing centres across the country. We asked people who had COVID, um, identified at community testing centres to come back and give us more samples. And we then evaluated how accurate the assay was. And in fact, it was around about 77% sensitive for COVID-19. So, you know, just over three quarters of patients who have COVID are picked up with the test. And separately, in people who didn't have COVID, the specificity of the assay was evaluated. And that's actually not bad. It's uh, around about 99.6%. So not bad. You'll still see a lot of false positives when you do testing on a large scale. Because you test a lot of people, even with a 99.4% specificity, you're going to get quite a large number of false positives. So that's also an issue worthy of some consideration, particularly with regard to staff testing, because a positive result, of course, means that the staff have to go off sick, potentially for 14 days, unless you rely on confirmatory results. And that could have a big impact on rotors, especially when you consider that it's not just the person themselves who has to isolate, but also their contacts. And quite a few of those contacts also work in the health service. This is just a natural feature, isn't it, of hospital life. It's really, really interesting. I mean, we can go back into the the fundamentals of how diagnostic tests work. But yeah, that figure of 99.6%, you think, wow, that's incredible. And, you know, how high does it have to be to, to, to make Rick really happy? And the answer is it depends who you're testing and that the fundamentally. So if you're using this test in patients who you think have got COVID and it comes back as positive, that's definitely, you know, post-test probability, they've definitely got COVID. But if you test it in people who probably haven't got it and very low incidences so in places like Cornwall for instance most of your tests that are positive will come back um, will actually be false positives what do you think about the sensitivity rig 77 77% is not brilliant compared to a lot of the tests that we would like to use in practice 
Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's right. So I guess you've got to think about it as reducing the risk to uh, patients and for nosocomial transmission, certainly not going to eliminate it because obviously a quarter of the people who have COVID are going to not be identified and continue working. Now, by doing twice weekly testing, the hope is that we will reduce that, that you know, you won't test, you're less likely to test false negative twice or three times if you've actually got COVID. So it might be a little bit better than that in practice. The thing is, we don't know because we didn't look at serial sampling in the uh, in the study. We'd hoped to, but it was it was just not feasible to um to actually operationalize that. So there will be a, some patients, some people who continue to practice despite potentially having COVID nineteen. Now, importantly, when we looked at our results and stratified the results by CT value, you can see that the sensitivity of the test gets better at lower CT values. So in people who have higher viral loads. So if you have a you know a, a pretty high viral load of let's say CT value of I think it was about 20, 25, then the sensitivity goes right up and it can achieve a sensitivity of over 90% in the uh, patients with the or people with the highest viral loads. Now, why is that significant? Because we think that when you've got a higher viral load, you're much more likely to be infectious. And so actually, although it's picking up perhaps just more than three quarters of people with COVID, actually, we're probably picking out the most infectious ones. So although it doesn't sound great to be missing a quarter of people with COVID, actually, the reality is that on the balance of probabilities, we're taking out most of the ongoing potential to transmit the virus. That's really interesting. I hadn't even thought of that one. The, the other thing I was thinking about in terms of the, the sensitivity was whether or not there might be user error because uh, you've done a lot of work in the past on point of care testing and even using um, healthcare professionals, there is variability in how well people perform tests. Now, the lateral flow isn't the hardest test in the world to do, but it is a little bit harder than peeing on a stick. It's not quite like a pregnancy test. You've got to put the swab in, you've got to put the drops in, you've got to mix it, and then you've got to put it on. So the serial testing would hopefully mitigate against that because hopefully you wouldn't get it wrong persistently but actually if it's a viral load issue as well then that's actually a little bit more reassuring yeah you're absolutely right and these are things that we just don't know rolling out twice weekly nhs staff testing we don't know how that's going to play out are people going to be more likely to see a line when there isn't a line simply because perhaps they've got other things to do family life at home and you maybe leave the test a bit too long if you leave the test a bit too long before you read off the result and sometimes you will see a positive line on your test uh, and that won't be a true positive so there's that possibility there's also the possibility that people um i mean when you do things on a large scale um you and i and all of our colleagues i'm sure would never want to uh, take a day off unnecessarily but then there might be people who, uh, who who feel that way and of course gives you a great opportunity to do so when there's a subjective line that's going to decide whether you're in work or you're off sick but similarly you might have people who really don't want to take the day off sick and they really don't want to see that line and that might uh, affect the sensitivity of the test we just don't know that uh, and this is a very very interesting experiment for us all we've of course got no precedent for this we've got to do something this is what has been decided to be done but how it will play out will be very very interesting i think i think i think it's absolutely fascinating and and the impact i think the impact on staffing will be oh, it's just unknown isn't it absolutely unknown but i uh, the moment my feeling is we've got the system We've got to do something, as you say. I think it's reasonable to give it a try. And there is there is a degree of science behind this. Um, but we are going to have to watch and see what happens. And it, it just will be fascinating. And that's what I've said all the way through the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been absolutely horrific. It's been a horrendous experience in so many ways. But from the science point of view, from the, the rapid pace of change and the learning, 
you know, it seems like every week we're learning and, ch- and being faced with new evidence-based medicine type challenges. And it, that is, it's tough, but it is interesting. Yeah, it really is. It's, 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 you know, we've never been in any situation like this before where we, you know, the findings of research are, are literally translated into what we do in practice almost immediately. You know, the impact on the rotors is going to be a really important to think about with staff testing. And, and I think one big take home message, you know, about the uh, lateral flow testing is that we have to be prepared to have some resilience in our rotors and be aware that we might have increased staff sickness because, you know, let's say you test a thousand staff with uh, uh, these lateral flow tests and we have a specificity like we said of 99.6% a sensitivity of 77% with a let's say a prevalence of 1.5% which is about what we get on staff testing at the moment you're going to get three false positives every round 12 true positives and uh, three false negatives so well as 15 people off sick and three people with covid uh, still working so um it's important to think about that 15 people out of every thousand in just one round of testing and of course we're doing rounds twice a week for 12 weeks so i think for rotor masters we have to be aware that we 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 really really do need to build in some resilience and have some scope to, to cross cover for when there is going to be some sickness and I know that there are certain departments which have um, suggested that they've staggered people in their rotors so that some people do it on a Monday and a Thursday, some people do it on a Tuesday and a Friday, some people do it on a Wednesday, et cetera, to just sort of make sure that we don't do everybody on the same day. Going forward, that seems to make a lot of sense to me, just to just to keep some sort of idea of what's going on. But I think you're right, a bit of resilience and an expectation that you're going to lose people off rotors would seem to make sense. So where are we, where are we up to with Falcon and Condor at the moment? What are you looking at now? So uh, the Falcon study is a multi-centre study looking at the diagnostic accuracy of tests. We originally in, uh, intended this to be in secondary care. Obviously, we took a bit of a diversion with this moonshot project uh, in testing centres. But we've got around about 50 hospital sites open now recruiting patients. We've recruited over 2,200 participants in total. And we are evaluating um, six rapid tests in hospitals. In fact, it looks like we are on the verge of completing four evaluations right now and that, that we should be able to stop uh, one of the big ones on Monday. And that will be very interesting to see the results uh, of that. Hopefully, we'll see a lot more rapid testing our, in our emergency departments. Some people have already got the benefit of having rapid tests in their emergency departments with devices like the DNA Nudge, the Samba 2 that have got out into practice. Uh, and there will hopefully be more following suit. Um, we're looking at some rapid antigen tests that give you turnaround times of as little as 12 minutes to give you a result. Um, I think that would be really game-changing for us in the emergency department to get a result that quickly because it could really affect what we do. It does bother me that we put some patients in our COVID areas, cohorted areas like the uh, COVID resource area, on the assumption that they might have COVID. And some of them are quite vulnerable. So, for example, a patient with COPD uh, is particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. Uh, but if they come in with acute respiratory symptoms and they require resource level care, then we have to put them in COVID resource. And if they don't have COVID, we've just exposed them to a significant risk that we really wouldn't like to take unless we have to. Now, if your test is even going to take you a couple of hours to come back, then you, your patient's still going to be exposed to that risk. But if it's a matter of minutes, we're going to reduce that risk really, really substantially. Question is, can we get to a level of sensitivity where it's it's safe to take them out into other cohorted areas? Or you know, do we still need to isolate them? We probably still need to isolate them. But it could still, if we think this through carefully, it could still help us to, di- to, um, to help to guide some very important clinical decisions. 
So at the moment, essentially, if you're not working in an emergency department, what we do with patients when they arrive is put them into three groups, which is yes, no, and maybe, isn't it, in terms of COVID? So yes, we know you've got it. Maybe you've had a community test. Maybe because you've got the signs and the symptoms, but we haven't yet managed to get a test result on you. And no, because um, the risks or the screening tools suggest that it's very unlikely. Now, those are all probabilities. The yes isn't definitely yes, and the no isn't definitely no, and the maybe is in the middle. But these earlier tests could actually reduce the number of maybes and make it a little bit more definite. And then we can we can do a risk-based assessment about how we work with the patients, I guess, is what you're saying. Some of the technologies there, that you, Rick, that you were talking about, so things like DNA Nudge and, and, and things like that, those are, those are brand names, I think. But are any of the technologies different to what we've seen with the lateral flow and the PCRs? Oh, yes. Yeah. So uh, DNA Nudge is a molecular test. And we've got, uh, you, you'll have heard, I'm sure, in the media about the LAMP tests, which is a sort of shortcut to PCR, essentially. Um, and there's a there's a lot of interest in using LAMP testing, potentially in saliva. Uh, although some of the early data coming out suggests that sensitivity of those tests might not be all, all that. Um, in order to get the sensitivity uh, better, it appears that we might need an RNA extraction step. So that's uh, called indirect lamp and then that does slow down the test and loses some of the benefits um, we've got uh, as well antigen tests so these are i mean essentially when you're doing a lateral flow test you are really detecting an antigen on the virus and we've got antigen tests that we could be using in care homes emergency departments other clinical areas as well that use an analyzer so we have uh, benchtop analyzers like uh, the Quidel assay, the um, Abbott ID Now, and we've got portable analyzers like the uh, Lumira DX assay. I'm not advocating any of these commercial technologies, just listing a few examples. Um, but those portable ones are sort of handheld devices that you could you know, take to a patient's bedside or certainly a, a benchtop near the patient and run your test. And I think you know many of those technologies are going to be very, very interesting for us in the ED because it's just it just brings the testing to the bedside. It's possible we might also see rapid throughput antigen tests as well on our auto analyzers. So um, you know you could get you could be sending it's not a point of care test. You send your test off to the lab to get your results, but if it's rapid throughput uh, as an antigen test, you might still be getting your results a whole lot quicker. There's a huge amount of technology going on this. The um, I mean the companies I've got to say from a commercial point of view. Obviously, it's a commercial opportunity for them, but so you know they're, they're not doing it for free. But again, the level of innovation and engagement has been, I think, quite remarkable. Again and again, the speed and the pace of change—I don't think we've seen this before. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's been a, an incredible effort from the life sciences industry, and you know, we think about that. You know, with commercial potential, it's you think, wow, yes, the, it's, it's about it's about money and sales. But actually, you think that the, the, we have the world's leading scientists working on these tests, and of course, to take them forward and get them into practice, you have to commercialize them. It's just the way way things work. It's the only way you get things into practice, and it's an incredible effort from you know top, top scientists to get these tests out, commercialize them, get them through the regulation, uh, re- regulatory bodies and out as far as being evaluated and then into practice. It's uh, you know, a real, real testament to uh, what, what we can achieve as a human race in this pandemic to, to have so many options. So Rick, um, I think we're, we're, we're coming towards a conclusion because we are, well, you know, odds and Emelins, we like to keep these things within, within half an hour or so. But I'm just thinking in Assuming that we're not going to be all vaccinated within the next three weeks, so we're going to be living with COVID certainly for several months. If we get good diagnostics at the front door and rapidly, how do you think that's going to change the way that we function as emergency physicians? What, is, what sort of difference is it going to make for us on a daily basis, do you think? 
Well, an important part of implementing a new diagnostic test is thinking through how the use of the test is going to affect your care pathways. So when you get a rapid test, I think it's really important to map out what we're currently doing now, understand the test characteristics, how sensitive and specific is that test, and therefore, on that basis, how can we use that to change decisions? And it may be that what you're doing is changing people actually from that red zone where we think they, you know, they're very high risk for COVID, they need to go into a cohorted resource area, into a sort of yellow zone where it's maybe. And that still might be beneficial. It might be that you can't get them to rule out at the front door. But I think we're going to see more rapid decisions made in the emergency department on non-elective admissions screened quickly. They'll have a lower pretest probability uh, of the disease. So perhaps more of them can be ruled out and safely moved into non-COVID areas so that we can get back to business. But importantly, it's not just about the ED as well. Testing is going to have a huge impact on our daily lives. We talked about the staff testing, but there are so many other important use cases to allow us to safely see each other again and do normal things. So schools and universities may be targets for testing. Care homes, relatives haven't been able to go in and see the residents of care homes for a long time, but testing might make that possible. Travel, we might be able to use testing to allow ourselves to get mobile again and travel more and see each other. There are so many opportunities for testing. And this is a really interesting evolution of diagnostic testing, isn't it? Because normally, of course, we handle diagnostic tests in medicine. You come to a healthcare organization and you get your tests. Now we're talking about it as, as a way of life, almost understanding diagnostics as a way of life. And that's, um, as far as I know, unprecedented. I agree. And I think the other thing that we've seen during the pandemic, thinking about it, is we've never seen, I don't think, and you're, you're going to maybe correct me on this. I don't think we've ever seen such innovation around diagnostics and therapeutics at the same time. Those things don't normally sort of have the same activity in the same process and in the same sort of years. It's normally you got diagnosed and then people look to therapeutics. In fact, arguably, we started looking at therapeutics really before we started evaluating a lot of the diagnostic tests that are out there and things like, you know, recovery trial, a platform adaptive trial looking at therapeutics has been running actually longer than the, than the diagnostic platform adaptive trials like, you know, Falcon and Condor. But it has been interesting to see how those two things, uh, you know, interact to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly, we're going to see an interaction between diagnostics and vaccines, because as the vaccines come out and we all start being immunised, it might really change the way that we use diagnostics. And of course, we've not really talked about antibody testing so far. There isn't uh, an established use case for antibody testing. But once we've got vaccines up and running, the question is, could they antibody testing become mainstream again? Will it have a use case? Are there evaluation needs before we, before we uh, determine how they're going to be used? And could that actually affect uh, you know, how we go about our daily lives? Could we use them to sort of generate those immunity passports that, that, had, that there was so much interest in earlier on in the pandemic, but now we've got vaccines become potentially a lot more feasible? So there is still a hell of a lot more work to do on this. We're not over it, but I'm glad we've got people like you, Rick. And as I say, you know, based on all the work you've done around diagnostics in the past, particularly around the management of troponin, it's been brilliant to see you translate it into um, what's been a fantastic study. I mean, a huge numbers of patients coming out of the, the UK studies and diagnostics, and it's going to make a real change. Very excited about Monday. I don't suppose you're going to tell me what the results are now, are you? I'm afraid I can't let uh, any results go just yet. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think you would, but we'll keep an eye on it. So uh, watch this space. I'll try and get the podcast out over the weekend then, Rick, um, so that um, people can hear your thoughts. And um, yeah, come back to us when we know a little bit more. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Simon. It's a pleasure as always. Mm-hmm.